The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Awesome. Well, good morning. My name's Emmeline, like Albert said. We're in Acts 20, and I'll be reading out of the NIV, but if you have one of the Bibles that's um, over on the tables, it's page 1114 to 1115. It's a bit long. Get ready. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and, after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Paris, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, Antiochus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Tros. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and, because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. While he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arm around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Asos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Asos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that, we crossed over the Samos and on the following day arrived at Mytilus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Metellus, Paul sent, sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived, among, lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my, my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am, that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. 
Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words that Lord Jesus said, himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. God bless the reading of the word. Can we give her a round of applause? That was quite a bit of reading. And, and since we're giving out uh, applause, can we also bless the praise and worship team for, for um, creating such an atmosphere? Isn't it sweet in here this morning? It's just a sweet spirit, and we thank you, uh, praise and worship team, for your preparation and, and, and doing so. Um, I, I have to confess that um, when I received the invitation to, um, to teach this morning, I actually thought I was going to the Gallery Church in London. And, and, then I, and then I got to the airport, and they said, oh, you got the wrong logo. Go back to Baltimore. So, um, and, and I want to give a point of clarity that um, um, my wife and I, who's here with me, we're, we're not derelict in our responsibility, because I know you said, um, our kids aren't with us. And they're like, hey, you're here from teaching. These kids don't even go to church. <laughs> my, my daughter had surgery a couple weeks ago, and so she's still recovering on surgery on her ankle. And she has a 13-year-old brother who um, feels as though when she gets to stay home, he gets to stay home because he's like her guardian. And so um, he says that he's praying for her to get better. Um, I'm not certain how quickly he wants her to get better. So um, can you just pray for my son? (laughs) But um, And I also do want to warn you this morning, um, as was stated, that um, uh, two years I'm on on the council, Baltimore City Council, and um, unfortunately, um, since I've been on the council, I've become bipolar. So during some parts of the teaching today, I will be a minister, and then the other parts, I probably will be Councilman Pinkett. And I never know which one is going to come up, so um, you would just have to bear with it. So thank you. But good morning, everyone. This is, this is wonderful. Um, and um, I'm just so thankful to have the invitation. And um, being that this is recorded, I want to make certain that uh, Pastor Ellis, understood. this is my second time coming to the gallery. And so this is the second time that I've been here, and he isn't here. And so I'm trying to wonder, is it that he just can't bear to see me teach? Or um, does he just trust me so much that he could be out of the... Okay, I'm, that's the way. I'm going I'm I'm to take that. I'm, I'm going to say that he just trusts me so much that he doesn't have to be here. And, and, and So really, the pressure is really on. But um, this morning, I just want to teach for a brief period um, out of Acts 20 on a topic, um, don't let the dream die, embrace it. Don't let the dream die, but embrace it. 
And so it is of a truth that a person's last words often reveal the content of their heart, or at times at least serves as a reflection of the manner in which they live their life. History is replete with noble men and women whose dying words resonate with us even today. And before he, was the, before he was to be hanged for spying on the British, the last words of, say, for example, the American patriot Nathan Hale were, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Some other words were, um, as he closed his eyes, once and for all, the great inventor Thomas Edison declared, it is very beautiful over there. So I guess we don't have to guess where Thomas is spending eternity, because it definitely wouldn't have been beautiful if it was the other, other way around. And there must be something about inventors, uh, especially when they finally come face to face with the master creator whose work excels even their brilliance, because it is said that upon his deathbed, Steve Jobs, co-founder of Apple, simply said, oh, wow, oh, wow. And if you think about it, when we reflect on just what we know of God and his majesty, sometimes, oh, wow, is the only appropriate response to how awesome God is. And maybe the most famous last words of them all, um, as uttered by Jesus to his 11 disciples after he was resurrected, is that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to, unto me. And go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Last words have power. They have meaning. Last words have instructions. Last words have life. And sometimes it's not so much that these will be the last words that the person utters, but it's more so that this might be the last time that they get to speak to us, that they get to speak to you. So even without the specter of death, the words still take on a sense of urgency and importance that they might not have if stated under different circumstances. It's during that times or those times that no word is idle. Every word, every sentence, every syntax, every inflection takes on a whole new meaning and relevance. And so here in this 20th chapter of Acts, we find that the Apostle Paul is in a situation where this is shortly will be the last time that he will have the opportunity to personally address these saints that are in Asia Minor, this region of Asia Minor. And as a result, the speech that Paul gives to the Ephesian elders in verses 18 through 35 has been called by some his last will and testament. Even Paul declares in verses 24 and 25 where he says, But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And in verse 25, this is what Paul says. And he says, And now... Behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone, preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Paul knew that this was the last time he was going to see uh, these uh, individuals. So he speaks with the awareness that this is it. This is the very last time that he's going to have the opportunity to share with his friends, the individuals that he's gone, grown to know <clears throat> and that he loves so dearly. How he knew this? is really irrelevant. All that matters is that he had the witness in his spirit that alerted him to the significance of this moment. He knew that this was a moment that he couldn't waste, that the words that he shared at this moment were critical because they were going to be the last words that he would ever <clears throat> be able to share with them. 
So he knew that he couldn't waste the moment. So Paul utilized this opportunity to reinforce and remind these leaders of some critical principles, some of which he had shared with them on previous occasions, knowing that they would no longer have the benefit of his voice. He needed these instructions to take residence in their spirit. You know, like a parent who's, for the, you know, for a teen who's now just got their driver's license, and before they get out the door, the parent runs through the laundry list of what to do. You know, no friends in the car, turn the radio down, be careful where you park, do you have enough gas? And so Paul is running down a list because he knows that this is the last time he's going to have a chance to, and so he's trusting that they will remember what he says and then apply it. So Paul starts with the attributes that mark a leader. The contents of Paul's list clearly signaled that he had no intent on making anyone's best-selling list when you look at the qualifications that he puts on leadership. His criteria for leadership was the kind of presentation that assures that you won't be getting the invitation back. This is just too rigid and too stringent. But Paul's school of leadership was founded on complete servitude to the Lord. Um, by the way, I had a chance to listen to some of the podcasts for Gallery Church, and um, I pleasantly discovered that uh, the members of Gallery Church know the difference between calling Jesus the Christ and then calling him Lord. Uh, I think that I, I, there's some people in here that, that, that aren't ashamed to call him Lord. Amen? Any, anybody with me? Because there's a big difference when, when we allow God to get all in our business that we open up every room in our house. You know how, um, and my wife is here, and I'll probably get in trouble. You know how you got certain rooms that can't nobody go into? <laughs> and, uh, the, the, you know, those junk rooms, those rooms where, you know, somebody tries, it's all, the door is always locked. Why is that door locked? <laughs> oh, no, don't worry. We're doing some construction in there. It's just where we throw all the clothes. But when God, when Jesus is your Lord, he has access to every room. You don't just direct him into the living room because that's where everything is nice and set up. He wants to be in your bedroom and your, he wants to know where you eat. He wants to be in every aspect of your house. And Paul taught leadership that uh, submitted with humility to the Lordship of Christ, that he was not just Jesus, but he was Adonai. He was their Lord, the Lord of their lives. And so as leaders, he desires that we serve him as Lord with great humility, many tears. This is, these are Paul's words. And the severe testing that comes through temptations. Paul knew that leadership required being humble. It required being a servant. It required um, giving our lives in complete submission um, and knowing that we might experience severe testing through temptations. And Paul, being a first partic partaker of the conditions of Jesus' lordship, is not hesitant to share those obligations with those who would aspire to, to leadership. Paul wanted there to be no doubt about what they were buying into. Paul didn't want anybody to have buyer's remorse. He wanted them to know exactly all of the small print. This is what being a disciple of Christ means. This is what, mean, what it means to be a leader submitted unto God. So Paul shared with them every detail of what it meant to be a leader. Understanding that even the principles of leadership are better caught than taught, Paul directs their attention to his deeds rather than merely his words. You know how sometimes we encounter individuals that talk a good game, but when you see their life, it doesn't line up with what they say. 
Paul wanted them to see his life. He wanted them to see that what I say, I apply to my own life. So don't necessarily listen to just what I say. Follow what I do. He wasn't ashamed or afraid to do that. And he declares, and he knew that when the sound of his voice had long dissipated, it would be the image of his actions that would continue to resonate. He knew that at some point his voice would die down and the memory of his voice would die, but the actions that they saw in him would have a life of their own. And so Paul declares that he held back nothing that was profitable to them. And by them he meant everyone, whether it was Jew or Greek. As a matter of fact, he never hesitated to preach and to teach both formally and informally. I, I love the way that Paul engaged with the Ephesian elders <clears throat> because he didn't just refine or confine his teaching to the, to the church. Um, he taught at your kitchen table. Paul looked for any opportunity that he could engage. And sometimes, if we would be honest, we do more of our teaching and preaching here when we really need to be doing it out in the highways and the byways and in the homes and in places where people gather um, so that we build a relationship with them. So Paul didn't confine his preaching and his teaching just to, within the walls of the ministry. He didn't just minister at his convenience. He took time to find out what caused uh, these individuals' anxiety. What causes you to fear? What are the concerns of your life? And then he used those circumstances as an opportunity to teach them to apply the word of God in their own lives. So Paul wanted to know, what are the things that you're facing? What challenges are you facing? So that I can teach you how to take this word of God and apply it to our situation. There's no need for a prescription if you don't know how to take it, if you don't know how to apply it. If, if nobody, you know, like when we go to the pharmacist and they most of the time, we, if we be honest, we probably don't even get the instructions. We just check the box and say that we got it. But the pharmacist has to tell us how to take the medicine, how to apply it, or we take it and maybe misapply it and to get frustrated because our condition never changes. Paul wanted to know exactly where people were and how they were living so that they would know how to apply the word of God. Paul was not desirous of creating a colony of dependents who were unskilled in the word of righteousness, but rather a body of mature disciples and to whom he could impart all that was deposited in him. And if I didn't know that, no better. Um, when I read about how Paul approached leadership and discipleship, it, it sounds to me like um, a guy that I know who's about, about this tall, um, if I would say, um, knowing his wife, that he definitely outkicked his coverage. Um, and some of you might know him because um, I think he pastors a church somewhere in downtown. Something called, maybe it's called Gallery Church. No, that's the one in London. But it sounds like Pastor Ellis to me when I think about somebody who wants to know intimately what uh, the disciples are going through and what your, what your fears are, what your concerns are, and is, and is concerned about the knowledge of the Word of God and how it's applied to your life. Um, so that you have success um, if we had more shepherds like that. And so I thank God for your pastor, um, a man that I call brother. In addition, Paul's leadership academy didn't espouse a doctrine that found comfort in merely celebrating the achievements of the past. Paul's leadership model was like the motto of, anybody listen to 95.1, Shine FM? 
You, you know the commercial that says, um, when we're done, you'll be happy. And if you're not happy, we're not done. <laughs> well, that was Paul's approach. He, he took the approach that if the Holy Spirit isn't happy, then I'm not done. And that my assignment was to continue to do until I've fulfilled all that God has asked for me to do. So Paul allowed the Holy Spirit to determine when his assignment. He didn't stop until the Holy Spirit told him that his assignment was completed. Um, so he informs the elders that the Spirit is leading him to Jerusalem. Although he doesn't have a clue what is waiting for him there, um, experience tells Paul that in the past, the Holy Spirit has consistently informed him that when, when, it was, when the Spirit was leading him to an assignment, um, that there was usually some prison involved, and there was usually some suffering or some tribulation involved. Um, so although Paul didn't know all the details, um, he knew that there was um, some temptations and some trials um, that would be a part of this journey. But knowing that, he still yielded himself to the Spirit willingly. But Paul is so sold out that none of that even matters. It didn't matter the hardship. It didn't matter the trials. Um, it didn't matter the, the suffering or the prison that might have been um, a part of the assignment that God had placed on his life. Because he says that not, none of that even moved him. Paul is teaching these leaders that when they face similar situations in their lives, they shouldn't be moved either. They should focus on completing the task that we all have been assigned by Jesus and to do so with joy, and that task being to testify of the good news of grace. I mean, that's an assignment that all of us have. It doesn't matter whether you're a bishop or a pastor or a brother or a layperson. We all have the assignment of telling others about the good news of God's grace. And we are all messengers of that grace. But Paul's leadership de-emphasized the messenger, meaning himself, and placed the priority where it rightfully belonged, and that was on the message. But in order for us to do that, we've got to know the message. We've got to believe the message. We've got to share the message. And having made it clear that this would be the last time that they would see Paul, he takes the opportunity to add a disclaimer. Paul was good about disclaimers. So in verse 26 and 27, he says, Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. Real colorful language there. But then he says, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Okay, so Paul, get to it. What, what are you saying? Paul's pretty much saying to them, if you didn't get it, it's not on me. I've done everything that I was supposed to do. I've done everything that I was responsible to for. If you didn't get the teaching, if you didn't get the instructions, my, my hands are clean. I, I did everything that I was supposed to do. I did everything that the Spirit of God <clears throat> instructed me to do. But trusting that these leaders received all that Paul had to offer them, he leaves them with what I call a command, a warning, and a remedy. First, he says, keep watch over yourselves and then all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So this isn't, let's not get caught up in titles. But essentially, Paul is saying, we need to watch out for one another. What good is it being in a loving community? What good is it being in the household of faith if 
there, there's not a spirit of love, a spirit of nurturing, a spirit of watching out for one another, a spirit of encouragement, of supporting one another. Um, if that was the case, then I w- might as well, my church, home church, could be in Gallery Church in London. But it's not. It's here in Baltimore. And I'm not sitting behind a tablet or a laptop. I'm here amongst like believers who are concerned about my welfare, who ask me how am I doing, um, who want to know that I'm walking successfully. Um, it's a part of making certain that we collectively oversee the flock. He then gives them a warning that after he leaves, savage wolves will come in among you and spoil the flock. And if that wasn't bad enough, he says, even from your own ranks, there will be some who serve with you now, um, who will speak perverse things for the purpose of drawing away disciples. Um, my son loves uh, nature shows, and, um, and because he loves them, I love them. And um, quite often we see shows where, let's say, for example, a pack of hyenas come up on um, a group, maybe a group of gazelle. And it almost seems like in every situation that there's just one gazelle who is preoccupied with that piece of grass. So as the whole herd moves away, this one gazelle is like, oh, this is so good. Did y'all get any of this grass? Where'd everybody go? And isn't that how the enemy is? Because the Bible says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But can he do that in the midst of this? All of this love, all of this care, all of this concern, all of this word, all of this worship. No, he desires to pull us away, draw us away from the flock so that he might destroy us. And Paul warned them that there would be those who would come and do that. Um, but it's even more condemning when there is one in the flock who is responsible for helping somebody else's be drawn away and, and be consumed by the enemy. But when that occurs, Paul um, tells them to remember this. And he says, remember that I have commended you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. And having heard that, the group, understanding that this is it, Paul was going to move on, they prayed together, they wept together. Um, They didn't want to see Paul go, but they knew that he had another assignment, and it was time for them to walk in what he had taught them. But if I would be honest, as I rehearsed Paul's last testament, I could not help but to do the same for a modern-day prophet and leader, disciple and servant that we're all familiar with, who, despite the wishes of his colleagues, returned to Memphis, Tennessee on April the 3rd, 1968. On a dreary, wet evening, fighting sickness himself, but not wanting to be derelict in his duty and, and disappoint the people who had braved the elements to, to, to meet him and to greet him, He left his room to greet a crowd at the Bishop Charles Mason Temple. Now, that's the name of a church right there. 
with hopes of refocusing the people on the nonviolence movement that had been so successful in Memphis. He had great success, and people had just started to drift away from the nonviolence message. Um, and part of that was being, they were being provoked by others. And so there was more violence happening, and he just kind of re- had to recalibrate the movement. So Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. greeted the crowd with, something is happening in Memphis. Reverend King said, something is happening in our world. Isn't it amazing? In 2019, I could have probably opened up my remarks with that same thing. Something is happening in Baltimore. Something is happening in our world. After his opening, he proceeded to survey great times in history, including Egypt, the Roman Empire, the Renaissance, the Civil War. He went through history era by era. But interestingly, he said, forsaking all those time periods and great moments, he declared to God that he would be happy if God allowed him to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century. Reverend King began to recall the events in Birmingham in 1963. His words painted a bleak picture of the times, but in a contradiction, he said that this was the best time in which to live. And when I'm listening and I'm reading, I'm like, the best time with the racism and the segregation and prejudice and violence and inequities and threats, what would make a man say that this was the best time To live. As he concluded his speech, he began to reminisce about his near fatal stabbing. If you all remember, in September 1958, he gave the account through the words of a child who wrote him a letter because the doctor said that if he would have just sneezed because of where the knife went into his chest, he would have died. And the young white girl from White Plains, New York, wrote him a letter and said, Thank God that you didn't sneeze. He exclaimed that he would have missed the emergence of the student sit-ins in 1960, the Freedom Rides in 1961, the Albany Movement in 1962, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 1963, and the Selma to Montgomery March in 1965. I wonder, is there anybody declaring that 2019 is the best era to live in? And I'm not talking about the challenges that we face but because they're so hopeful because of the actions of those who are sold out for justice and equality and reconciliation. We should be able to say that 2019 is the best era because of what we collectively are going to do to change the the evil current that is going across our nation. In what appeared to be a prophetic finale to his speech, Reverend King revealed that he was not afraid to die. He said, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. He said, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. What a humble prayer. What a humble request. I just want to do God's will. And because that was his prayer, he said, And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. 
But unlike any other night or any other speech or sermon, because he gave hundreds, witnesses including some close allies, colleagues of him, Colin Abernathy, Andrew Young, James Jordan, men who knew him intimately, they said that as they looked at Dr. King that he had tears in his eyes as he took his seat. James Jordan, sensing that there was just something different about this night, said that this time it just seemed like he was just saying goodbye. Imagine it was kind of similar to the saints in Ephesus who had to say bye to another prophet called Paul. Jordan supposed that he was just saying goodbye and that he didn't want to leave, but it was time to leave. So on April the 4th, while Reverend King waited for a limousine to take him to dinner at Reverend Billy Kyle's home, he was fatally shot on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel less than 24 hours after his last will and testament. Hearing and reading his words, listening to the conviction and the hope, the love and the courage, If Reverend King was alive today, I wonder what he would say. Maybe the tears would be because, like Paul told us, well, I don't know what will happen now, but what I do know is that we've got some difficult days ahead. But could we say, like Reverend King, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. Or did we think that justice would come easy? Did we think that it would come without struggle? Did we think that the 60s would be the extent of what we would have to do in order to fight for equality and justice? And that that was all that needed to be done and now we could just be on cruise control and everything would be all right? Or would his eyes be swollen with tears over the hundreds, the thousands of black men who die in gun violence each year, or the thousands that die on opioids trying to medicate their pain, or, or the battle that's being waged in our nation's seat of, cap, of power over immigrants, a nation found by immigrants fighting to keep immigrants out. What are we doing? What would Dr. King's eyes look like? Or would his eyes be swollen with tears because while he told us that we wouldn't see him again and that he wouldn't get there with us, he had all the confidence that if we, the believers, the call-out ones, the disciples of Christ, that if we remain committed to God's will, that one day we would reach that promised land. Maybe his eyes would well up and be swollen with tears because he would have to face the harsh reality that 50 years gone now and we still haven't reached that promised land. Or maybe he would be swollen with tears simply because the world is facing a problem that only Jesus' disciples can address. And too often... If we would just be honest, we have assumed a posture like Saul in the Old Testament, not the Saul in the New Testament, but the Saul in the Old Testament, that while everyone was waiting for God to present him, they're going, where's the king? Where's the king? 
and someone declares, oh, he's over there behind the stuff. You know how we can hide behind the luggage, our baggage. We can hide behind our reputations, our possessions, our hang-ups. Maybe his eyes will be swollen because, of course, it's not happening here, but in some areas, the church has abandoned our first love. You know that first love of reconciliation and redemption and forgiveness, the first love of caring for the least of us, the, the, the first love of speaking truth to evil, the first love of promoting the gospel of grace. So in closing, I, I want to just do this because I think that Paul lays out for us in a way how we can keep the dream from dying. And it's still found in that same chapter 20 of Acts. And while it's already been read, let me just read for you. And I'm going to do this, and then we'll pray, and I believe the praise and worship team will then come back up. But in verse 7, it says, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. So they did just like we do, gathered on Sunday. And clearly, um, Paul preached all night. I am so glad that I was not a part of Paul's church. Um, (laughs) Lord, forgive me. (laughs) Bruh, midnight? Come on, man. I know that you're anointed, but you ain't that anointed. <laughs> Did I just say that? I'm in trouble. I'm not going to... can, can you take that off of this? But it said that he had there, to, and he just preached and preached. I guess it was just good to Paul. He just kept preaching. But he knew that this was it. He was leaving, and it's something about not wanting to say goodbye. And so he just kept preaching. And the the Bible says, and there were many lights in the upper chambers where they were gathered together. So it was nighttime, so they had gas lights. And so the room was filled with, if you could imagine, if we were in this space and the only light that we had were gas lights to provide heat and, 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 and light, and the room starts filling up with smoke and heat because it's rising up. And so here they are in this room late at night filled with smoke, potential smoke or fumes and the heat from these gas lights. And the Bible says, and there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus. And the Bible says, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, this young man, Eutychus, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. So here this young person was in the right place. He's in church. We're not supposed to get hurt in church, are we? I mean, this is where we're supposed to be, but who was watching out for Eutychus? I mean, he didn't just, what what is it called, narcolepsy? He didn't just fall down sleep. He, He gradually fell asleep. Did anybody say, yeah, Eutychus? You're in a dangerous position. Maybe you should slide into further into the room. Or is that how Eutychus was treated? Maybe he wanted a seat in the front row, but you know how sometimes we treat young people. No, this is for the adults. 
you go over here because this is your section of the church. And unknowingly, we set up a situation where our young people are teetering one foot in the church, one foot out of the church. But when they fall, that was your fault. And the shame of it is, Eutychus' name means lucky. (laughs) Go figure. One lucky on that day. And so the, it says, the Bible says, And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for having your priorities straight. Thank you for not being so self-absorbed that when somebody else was in harm's way, that you stopped what you were doing, you stopped your program, you stopped those things that you thought were important to go see about this young man. And I think it's, I think it's real interesting. The Bible says that Paul went down, and the Bible says, and fell on him and embracing him. The Greek word that's used in that moment for embracing is a Greek word called epipesin. And it's rarely used in the Bible. And I only can recall only one other place where it's used. And if you have your Bible, if you could turn with me to Luke chapter 15. And I'm going to close with this. How do we not let the dream die? We have to embrace it. So Luke 15, I'll start at verse 17, says, And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And here we go. And he rose and came to his father. And we know the story of the prodigal. His father's looking for him. His father's waiting for him. Matter of fact, the father is the prodigal one because so, his love for his son is so lavish. And he says he came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. His father saw him and had compassion and ran and epipissin and kissed him. His father ran and embraced him the same way that Paul embraced Eutychus. And if we're going to allow for the dream to not die for what we have here to be the norm, to be what our communities look like. There are going to be times when we're going to have to step down the road, step out of the house, and find those individuals who are on the margins. And you know what? We're going to have to embrace them.